For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We just finished the book of Luke, which surprisingly took us an entire year to complete. Feels like uh, we just flew past that. Now we're going to read and study the companion book, the book of Acts. And we're going to look at the first chapter, first 11 verses, provide a little bit of introduction as well as jump into some of the meat in chapter 1. Now, I guess to begin with, we should do a little introduction. First of all, we argued in the book of Luke that the author was actually Luke, the physician. And the way that we concluded that was whoever wrote the book of Acts and Luke was probably with Paul at Rome where the book of Acts ends. Now, one of the things that's very unique about the book of Acts, if you've studied through it, is that the author moves from the first person singular or or talks about uh, the apostle Paul or the disciples in the second person and then shifts over to the plural and starts referring to these travels that we had. And these are called the so-called we passages. And so that continues on right up until the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28, when Paul ends up sailing to Rome, and there he writes the prison epistles. So when you list all of the companions that Paul had on that journey and start to look at all of the different people who are mentioned by name in the book of Acts, you can deduce that the only person who, whoever the book of Acts, uh, the author uh, of, book, of the book of Acts uh, fails to mention was actually Luke. And so it's likely that he was probably the one who wrote Luke, Luke Acts. Not to mention the early church fathers affirm his authorship. So if you are a little bit confused about that or want to learn more about it, you can reference our teaching that we gave in Luke uh, chapter 1. So we're going to assume that Luke was the author, and we want to look at the purpose as well of the book of Acts. And I think maybe the way to approach this um, would be to ask this question. What would it be like if Acts wasn't in the New Testament? What would, what would it be like? I mean, wh- what kind of conclusions would we draw? You know, for example, if you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you immediately jump to the book of Romans, it would be a little bit confusing. First of all, there's a time element. We know that Jesus died probably around AD 33, and some of the earliest epistles or letters in the New Testament were written around 48 or 49. So what happened in that intervening time, the 14 or 15 years from Jesus' death until these letters are being written to these churches that are scattered abroad? Secondly, without the book of Acts, we'd be confused about some of the key players that are mentioned in the epistles in the New Testament. Like if you read the Gospels, for example, Some of the major players there are obviously Jesus, but then you have guys like Peter and the disciples, and Peter was one of the leading spokesmen for the disciples. Then once you jump into the book of Romans, here's this guy named named Paul writing this book, 
We have no clue where he came from. And he's talking to these group of believers who are in Rome, far away from where Jesus began his ministry. And so you'd be totally confused. Also, there's a a shift in locus as well. You know, if you read the Gospels, a lot of Jesus's ministry centered around Jerusalem and the northern part of Israel. So really in Judea. And then once you turn to the book of Romans and you read on in the New Testament, it's amazing because it seems like things have shifted from Jerusalem and Judea. And now... Jesus has followers that fill the entire Mediterranean basin. And it seems like he's, you know, the people throughout the world are following him at this point. And so it's very confusing. How did this small religion or splinter group of Judaism turn into this worldwide movement? And again, without the book of Acts, we'd have no clue. Uh, Also, it's very interesting when you look at the Gospels, it's very clear that Jesus spent most of his ministry focused in on the Jews. He would have some run-ins with other people groups like the Samaritans, who are the the Jewish arch enemies. Occasionally, he would run into Gentiles or non-Jewish people, but he primarily focused his ministry teaching and serving and healing his own people. But again, when you jump into the rest of the New Testament, if you excluded the book of Acts, you'd see that the majority of the people in these local communities that the the authors of the New Testament talk about are non-Jewish people. And so again, you'd be sitting there scratching your head wondering, how did this happen? Again, the book of Acts really, I think, helps instruct us It puts the pieces together to help us figure out what happened in this intervening time. So really, it goes without saying that the book of Acts is one of the most important books in the New Testament. It's the thing that, it's the hinge that kind of connects the Gospels with the rest of the New Testament. Another way maybe to think about this would be to ask yourself this question. What would you think of Christianity if you're a Roman official in the first century? I'm sure this question has kept many of you up late at night (laughs) pondering this. But if you think about the book of Acts and really the book of Luke, it's a way of explaining Christianity to the Roman mind. And, you know, to the Romans, Christianity was this strange religion, which was a splinter group from Judaism And many Romans hated Jews because they were so culturally different and they were exclusive and they isolated themselves. And so many of the Romans, uh, you know, felt racism, hatred toward the Jews. And apparently this Christianity thing uh, splintered off of that. Their founder was this guy who died somewhere in obscure Palestine. And now they're claiming that this guy's a king. And from their standpoint, this message and religion is spreading like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire, and people are claiming that this guy, Jesus, who is dead and they say is alive, is their new king, as opposed to Caesar. So you can imagine that Romans, 
as they were looking on and, and observing what was happening in the Roman Empire, seeing this movement of Christianity spreading throughout, were probably thinking to themselves, this is a dangerous movement that threatens to take over all of the religions that have been established for hundreds of years in Rome. Not to mention, this religion seems subversive because in the Roman Empire, nearly a quarter of the population were slaves. And these Christians, these followers of Jesus, are now saying that all people are equal, whether male or female, slave or free, everybody is equal. And so you could see why many Romans felt like this was a threat and why there was a shift at some point and the Romans started to persecute the Christians vigorously. And so really, I think Luke Acts represents a defense of Christianity not only demonstrating Jesus' innocence, but also showing that this movement of Christianity is compatible with the Roman government, that it's not there to overtake it or overthrow it, but that it can coexist side by side with it. And actually, many of the allegations that they've heard about Christianity are actually untrue. Luke elaborates on the destination and the, author, or, uh, the recipient of this letter in Acts 1, verse 1 and 2. He says, I, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. So he mentions his first book, which, as we argued, presumably was the book of Luke. This was a two-volume set, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And he's writing this. Uh, to explain everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. So he's giving a defense for Jesus that he was innocent, though he was crucified as a criminal. He's explaining that what Jesus taught was not subversive, that it actually was compatible with Roman, um, the Roman authority. Now, Luke, in his earlier gospel gives a very similar introduction. In Luke 1, verse 1 through 4, he says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us, and they use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. So he points out that he did careful research and interviewed eyewitnesses to not only Jesus' life and ministry, but also his death and resurrection. And he says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. Now, it's a little bit confusing because he mentions this guy Theophilus both in his gospel and in the book, in the book of Acts. Now, we're not exactly sure who this guy is. There are a number of theories out there. Some people believe that Theophilus was actually a patron or publisher of Luke Acts. And typically in the ancient world, whenever somebody would pay to have a historical account put together, the author would actually pray, pay honor to the patron or publisher by mentioning them in this, in this manner, by calling them, you know, most excellent individual and uh, it was a way of honor, honoring that person for their patronage. And so some people think that 
this guy Theophilus actually ponied up the money to not only have Luke live, but also research Jesus's life, interview all these witnesses, and put together an orderly account in order to give to anybody who had a question about um, Christianity. Another theory is that this guy is actually a Roman official, and that maybe he is actually Paul's defense attorney. A number of things that sort of tip us off to this is, first of all, as we read in, in Luke 1, Luke refers to him as most excellent Theophilus. And it's interesting because Claudius, who is mentioned in the book of Acts, a Roman official, writes uh, a letter and in his introduction refers to Governor Felix as his excellency. And again, we see this also in chapter 24, verse 3, when the Jewish lawyer, Tertullus, speaks of Felix. He says, your excellency, Felix. And then Paul, later in chapter 26, verse 25, uh, 25, speaking to Festus, who happens to be Felix's successor, refers to him as most excellent Festus. So it's, it's likely that this was actually a legal brief for Paul. He's stuck there in prison, and what Luke is doing is he's collecting and compiling a legal brief to give to Theophilus so that he can defend Paul and demonstrate not only Jesus' innocence, but also that Paul was innocent as well. Because, you know, this Paul guy was actually very suspicious to the Romans. You know, first of all, he was a Jew, and then now he claims to be a Christian, and it seemed like wherever he traveled, he, happened, he managed to spark a rebellion wherever he went. And so they viewed this guy as dangerous. And yet it's very clear that from the book of Acts, he was not doing anything that was outside of the law. And that it was really people attacking him unjustly that was causing all of this persecution, these riots. And so that's probably the best explanation for this two-volume set, Luke-Acts, that the author Luke is actually providing a defense for the Apostle Paul as he's awaiting trial in Rome. Now, as we move on in verse 3, we're told, during the 40 days after Jesus suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. So, Right away, the author Luke tries to show Theophilus and his readers that Jesus' resurrection was actually empirically verified. And you guys probably studied this last week when Roch taught on the resurrection of Christ. But, you know, I'm sure that the apostles probably were like, am I daydreaming when they, see, when they saw Jesus raised from the dead? They're thinking to themselves, am I seeing an apparition? And yet Jesus challenges them to come and touch the the wounds, the scars in his hands and his feet and in his side. He's like, you know, if you guys are unconvinced that that it's me here in bodily form, come come here and touch. To prove it, he actually sat and had dinner with them. And you can imagine that when Jesus left, they were probably sitting there you know, looking at the, the plate that he ate off of and just staring in disbelief. 
And so Jesus, on a number of occasions, demonstrated that it was actually him. Now, there's a lot of skepticism about the resurrection of Christ. You know, you even go to some churches today, and they do not believe that Jesus raised bodily, that in fact, Jesus just rose in our heart, and so we have Easter faith. It doesn't really matter whether or not he, he was actually resurrected from the dead. Some go even further. Skeptics would say that what happened here was that the apostles actually experienced a mass hallucination, that out of their grief and anticipation that Jesus would come back, that they actually saw him, but, you know, they were hallucinating. Now, that's possible. We have documented cases in history where there are mass hallucinations, but not in the way that Luke describes here. It says that over a course of 40 days, he appeared to the apostles from time to time. So it seems like he appeared to not only individuals, but groups of people over a course of 40 days. Now, there are you know, cases where people have had mass hallucination in one event, but there's nothing documented that shows that something like this happens consecutively over a course of a few days and that they had the same hallucination over and over again. And so I'm sure that Roch argued forcefully that the best explanation for the disciples' insistence that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead was that they truly believed he was raised from the dead, that they saw him. Well, we're told in verse 4 and 5, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them. He says, don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised as I told you before. So he gives them instructions. He says, stay put. And he says, John baptized with water, but just in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he says, don't do anything. Sit tight. I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit, and he is the one who's going to empower you. It's interesting because Jesus promised this really throughout his ministry. He alluded to it numerous times early on in his ministry, and he became more explicit about what would happen as he was facing the final, final hours of his death. And so this was a fulfillment of what Jesus had been talking about right before he died. In verse 6 and 7, we're told, So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept saying, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. And so... Uh, for some reason, the disciples still were confused. Maybe they thought that the, turnover, the turnaround from Jesus being raised from the dead and then coming and establishing his kingdom would happen in sh a short period of time. But Jesus really sets, sets them straight and says, no, uh, there's going to be a period of time that passes here. And don't concern yourself about when I'm going to return. Just worry about the instructions that I'm giving you right now. Then he says in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And so he gives them sort of the central mission and promise that characterizes the entire book of Acts. I mean, this really stands as sort of the thesis statement for the book of Acts. He says that you're going to tell people about me. And 
If you've been around for a while listening to some of these teachings, this theme comes up over and over again throughout teachings because it's emphasized in the Bible that one of the primary missions God has given to us is to share the message of Christ to those who don't believe in him. He reiterates this in more detail in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. As he's departing, he says, I've given, been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He says to the disciples, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you examine the Greek, the force of the imperative is directly on the word go. Literally, or word for, a word-for-word word translation of this would be, wherever you are, go and make disciples of all nations. That's, that, that word there, go, is in the emphatic position. And so Jesus says that we're not supposed to stand around and wait for people to come to us. We're not supposed to just live these attractive lives and hope people notice that something's different about us. That we're actually to go out to them. And he says that we need to make disciples of all the nations. So it's not just confined to one locale or just to your neighbors. Even though God wants us to reach those individuals, he wants us to go even further and beyond that. That he wants to reach entire cities. And that we can make an impact globally to carry out God's mission. And... He doesn't want people who are just going to be uh, shallow followers. He also wants people to deepen in their faith. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching these new disciples to obey all the commands that I give you. So he wants to make sure that these believers, these people who become followers, actually develop and mature in their faith. That's one of the really sad things about modern Christianity. There are, there are many people who are so-called Christians, and yet when you talk to them, they know virtually nothing about the Bible. They're ignorant. And some have, you know, met Christ at some sort of rally or some sort of evangelistic event that they attended when they were little. But even though they receive Christ, they really haven't done anything with their faith. That's not what Jesus envisioned here. He envisioned a group of followers who are mobilized and also equipping one another to carry out his mission that would eventually spread throughout the world. And more importantly, he says, and be sure of this, that I am always with you even to the end of the age. That gives the disciples confidence that they can go, that they're not alone, that God is going to be with them throughout this entire process. We're going to talk more about that a little bit later. And so this is what some have called the Great Commission. It really represents our central mission. Now, some people are a little bit irritated by this whole idea of Christians sharing Jesus with them. You know, you'll sometimes hear people say, why are Christians so zealous to convert people? I mean, it's cool that your life has changed. I'm glad that you have your faith, but, you know, just keep that to yourself, man. Quit trying to, like, shove that down my throat. 
you know, you believe your thing, I believe my thing, and, you know, we could just coexist and, and, and be fine. Now, I think it's important for us to sort of think about this from, you know, the Christian perspective. First of all, we looked at a couple passages where Jesus explicitly commands his followers to do this. So it's not like we're just inventing this. It's not like we are fabricating this in our own mind, that this is something that we should do based on an implication we read about in the New Testament. This is something that Jesus directly commands us to do. Secondly, it would be sort of selfish to withhold something that could potentially save people's life, especially if it had eternal implications. You know, imagine if you were suffering from, you know, a a serious illness, like, for example, HIV AIDS, right? Contracted it when you were younger. And so you've been taking some meds to try to uh, fight off some of the... um, symptoms and uh, from it spreading even further. And uh, as you're walking one day, somebody walks out of an alley and stops you and says, hey, I know that you have a problem. I know that you have this serious illness and I want to give you something that's going to change your life. And so this individual hands you a satchel and you open it up and, and you see that there are vials in there. And he says to you, this is the cure that you've been looking for, and then disappears. And so you look at this, and you just sort of, you know, view it with a little bit of skepticism, and you get home, and you throw it into your dresser, and you think, well, whatever. You know, this must be some sort of joke or whatever. And so for a few weeks or a few months, you forget about it, but then as your, your, your symptoms progress out of desperation, you open up your drawer, and you think to yourself, might as well give it a shot. And so you start injecting yourself with this, uh, whatever it is, you don't know. And you start to notice within the course of a couple weeks that it seems like your, system, your, your symptoms are starting to disappear. And then when you show up to your doctor's appointment that you had scheduled, he runs a test and it, it shows that you are negative of HIV AIDS. I mean, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Now, what if you went home and you noticed that there were a few vials left in your dresser? And you thought to yourself, well, you know what? I could do something with this, but I'm too busy. I don't feel like I have enough time to do anything with it. Or, you know, people aren't going to listen. They're going to be skeptical that this is actually a cure to HIV AIDS. And so I'm not sure I want to have to deal with that. And so you do nothing about it. I mean... How would you characterize a person who did that? I mean, that would be irresponsible, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be almost wrong. Maybe I should correct myself. It is wrong to simply do nothing when you know that you're sitting on a potential cure that could save, you know, millions of people's lives. And yet, think about this from the standpoint of the Christian, If what the Bible says is actually true, then we have something that is even more important to tell people about than the cure to HIV AIDS. We have something that has infected 100% of the population, death. And so you can understand from our standpoint why this would be one of the most important things that we communicate 
First of all, to our family and friends, but also to the world around us. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I don't buy that. That's fine. I'm not expecting you to, but put yourself in our shoes. I mean, it would only make sense that if this is what the Bible says, and it's actually true, that we would act the way that we do. Secondly, most of the time, you know, we usually don't have to tell people who just met Christ to share him with others. We don't, we don't have to, like, go through the importance of sharing your faith. People just do that naturally. You know, think about when you encounter something that's free and awesome. You know, somebody tells you on Halloween, if you wear a piece of tinfoil and go to Chipotle, you're getting a free burrito, homie. <laughs> you know, when I first heard about that, I was preaching the gospel, <laughs> telling everyone that I knew about it. Chipotle wasn't forcing me to do that. They didn't have me on the payroll. I did it because it was free and awesome, and I wanted my friends to benefit from it. And so likewise, you know, when, when somebody encounters the love of God and they see that transform their lives, there's a natural instinct to want to share that with other people. You know, I was just thinking about a guy um, in my high school group. He's like 13, 14 years old. He's, he's an incoming freshman. And this guy actually met Christ recently this spring. And he's sort of an awkward guy. He's got a lot of anxiety and stuff. And, you know, at first when he was coming out to our group, he would he'd be sort of annoying and stuff. He'd be like, oh, you know, listen to this new rap artist. And he's like this, you know, 95-pound skinny white kid. And uh, we're like, oh, yeah, 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 that's cool, whatever. And, um, but as he started to hear the word of God and his spiritual interest started to blossom, um, he started inviting his friends out. And, you know, just recently he brought a couple friends out and is just super excited about that. Now, we didn't have to tell him, hey, you should go and share this with your friends. He just did that naturally. And, you know, when I drove him home one day, I was like, you know, so how are things going in your relationship with God? He's like, man, you know, I just heard a teaching about anxiety, and I realized I had so much social anxiety before I met Christ, but now that I have Christ in my life, it's almost like that has evaporated, and it's so awesome. And so that's something that happens when you meet Christ, is that there's almost this desire to, to share this good, awesome thing with other people. Now, I think this points to the fact that this, the church's central mission is to bring the message of God's love into the world. That is our central message, that God has charged us with a mission. This is a little bit confusing because if you have a church background, you may have heard different things. Or at least you may have seen things that seem to suggest that this isn't the central message or the central mission of Christianity. For example, sometimes churches emphasize gaining political influence and legislating Christian morals. And that's not the central mission of the church. You know, God wants us, I mean, you know, he wants us to be good citizens and, and participate in the political process. But I think that many Christians are misguided in the thought that, you know, what we need to do is we need to, to gain a consensus 
in the government. And that we need to start legislating morals to bring uh, the United States back to God. And, you know, I, I tend to uh, view things a little bit differently. I believe that we should participate in the political process, but the way that societies get transformed is as individuals meet Christ and their lives are, are transformed as a result. And so I think this can be very poisonous. You know, I remember a young guy who he came out of this, you know, party lifestyle and he met Christ and he was coming out to our Bible study and seemed very promising. But he was also going out to this other uh, church, a local area church. And eventually he decided, you know, I want to pick one church and he decided he was going to go to the other one. And so a couple years later, I ran into him and I said, oh, how are things going? Are you still going to church? And he's like, no, nah, I stopped doing that. And I was like, oh, why? He's like, you know, there at that church, I couldn't tell what was more important, my faith in Christ or whether or not I was a staunch Republican. Now, you know, I don't have problems with Republicans. I don't have problems with, with Democrats. But the point is that uh, that's not the way that we change the world. That's not the mission of the church. You know, it isn't about focusing on being holy and insulating ourselves from the evil world that we live in. You know, God wants to change us. He wants to transform us. He knows we have a lot of hang-ups. He knows we have a lot of addictions. He knows that we have a lot of relational problems, and God wants to heal us of those things. But it's not for the purpose of us being good people. He wants to transform us so that we can be more effective for him. A lot of times, these are barriers that are holding us back from being effective for God. And so God doesn't want to just heal us and then to protect us by sheltering us within a Christian community where we can sort of hold a little holy huddle. Instead, he wants us to go out into the world and to meet people where they're at. I mean, many of us experience that where at really our lowest point, God sent someone into our lives to share the message of Christ. And so in the same way, we're to go out. That's why Jesus commissions, go and make disciples of all nations. He doesn't say, get them to come. Third, it isn't about finding a place where we get our needs met or that excites us. You know, a lot of times people conceive of Christianity as this place that you go to Sunday morning and you enjoy the worship service and you get to gather with other Christians and you find this place that can meet all of your needs. Let me give you a little hint. Christianity isn't about meeting your needs. It's about mobilizing you, transforming you, so that you can meet other people's needs. And so it's not about trying to find a place where people are going to come and serve me. It's about a place where we can learn how to serve others and to be effective in sharing Christ with people who don't know him. We should be excited about God. We should worship him. We should get our needs met. But in many ways, that's to fuel us in order to carry out his work more effectively. Finally, it isn't about devoting yourself to social causes and serving the poor. 
Although God wants us to have a heart for the poor, he wants us to take exception for the poor, he wants us to defend the rights of the poor, he wants us to do all those things. But he also understands that this is merely a function of the church, not the mission of the church. Those are two different things. The central mission of the church is to share Christ with people. And in many ways, serving the poor can adorn our message where people, when they, when they look on and they see us serving the poor and having a heart for people who are in need, they start scratching their heads and wondering, you know, what, what drives these people to do this, to sacrifice their time, their money, and their comfort to serve these people? Or to the very people that we're serving, it shows we're more than just talk. We're not here just to say that we love people. We actually show that we love people. And so people tend to be a little bit more receptive to the message of Christ when they see that Christians are willing to get down and, you know, get dirty, uh, you know, to serve people um, and, and not just, you know, sit back and throw money at a situation. Now he says that this message This mission is not only going to start in Jerusalem, but it's going to go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And really, I think this gives us sort of a table of contents for the rest of the book of Acts. We read about the message of Christ spreading throughout Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 7. Actually, next week, we're going to study how the Holy Spirit breaks in to the book of Acts and how this catapults the the church really on its first day, to include 5,000 members. And this goes on until chapter 7. Then we read about how this spreads through Judea in what you might call unusual circumstances. There is a persecution that breaks out that scatters all of the believers in Judea, and they're forced to go out and share the message of Christ throughout the region. And then in Samaria, we're told in Acts chapter 8, verse 5 through 25, that The message goes to the Jews' arch enemies, the Samaritans, the people that they hated the most, and that it spreads into that region. And then finally, we read about this spreading to the ends of the earth where the Apostle Paul goes on these missionary journeys carrying the message of Christ to these far-off lands. And that's where the book of Acts ends in chapter 28. But really, Acts doesn't really contain an ending because we haven't really fulfilled Jesus's mandate. Remember, Jesus says that this is going to go out to the entire world. Well, you know, when he says that go and make disciples of all nations, he's not just talking about Christianity entering into a political border. That word nations in Greek is the word ethne, which describes an ethnic group people with a distinct culture and language. And depending on what nation you go to, many of those nations contain, in in some cases, dozens or hundreds of people who have very specific and distinct ethnic groups. And so this message needs to travel to each of those ethnic groups throughout the world. And the reason why God is holding out for this. Why he commissions us to carry this out is because he wants to give people as many opportunities as possible to turn back to him. One of the things that's interesting here is that God was always planning to change his program 
including expanding his reach to the entire world. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, it's very Jewish. I mean, it's, it's centered on the nation of Israel. But when you turn to the book of Acts, it sort of explodes and goes international. But you read passages, for example, in Isaiah 42, verse 6 and 7, God predicted long ago that this was going to happen. He says, I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you to my people Israel as a symbol of my covenant with them. And you will be a light to, the gui- uh, a light to guide the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind, and you will free the captives from prison, releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. You know, notice he says, you will open the eyes of the blind and you will be a light as a guide to the nations. Now, God, through the nation of Israel, was was doing something very specific. He was nurturing the nation of Israel and preserving carefully the line from which the Messiah would come, Jesus. Not to mention, he was inspiring prophets to author numerous books that we now have in the Old Testament. And so when the stage was set after Jesus came, died, and was raised, he was ready to enter into the next phase, which he had predicted long ago in Isaiah and in many other passages. You know, you have to think about this from the standpoint of the disciples. This must have been a pretty daunting task for Jesus to be like, okay, so you're going to go and take this message to the entire world. I mean, imagine what you must have been thinking as, as the disciples. You know, what if he just gave you that commission? He's just like, uh, okay, see you later. Good luck with that. Shalom. <laughs> um, you'd be like, how are we supposed to carry this out? You know, Jesus' disciples weren't the kind of guys that you would expect to accomplish something like this. You know, when they were handing out superlatives in high school, these guys weren't the ones who were most likely to change the world. I mean, these were average, ordinary guys. They were working-class guys, had some education, and yet Jesus chose them. And so you can imagine from the standpoint of the disciples that, you know, hearing Jesus say, you are going to go and be my ambassadors to the entire world about this message. You'd be thinking to yourself, are you sure that you're, you're talking to us? You know, you're probably looking to see if there's someone behind them. And, you know, many of us probably in this room feel the same way too. We feel like, you know, God has called us to do this incredible thing, but I mean, who am I? You know, I'm, I'm not that gifted. I'm not that talented a lot of problems in my life. I can barely take care of myself, let alone change the world. Well, before he left, Jesus promised them the resource to accomplish this mandate to carry out the message of Christ to the entire world. We read in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So Jesus not only gives them the mission, but also the promise that he will empower their ministry to empower their service for him through the animating work of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's interesting that at the very beginning, in verse 1, 
Luke says, I told you about everything Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus uh, taught many things, and he did many things while he was in the body, but since he ascended back into heaven, he now has commissioned his new body, that is, his followers in Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit to carry out the rest of his mission. And so Jesus gives us confidence that we can carry out this task, that he hasn't left us alone. Remember in Matthew 28, verse 20, he says, Lo, I am with you even to the very end of the age. And what he was speaking of was this moment when the Holy Spirit would come upon them and empower them to carry out this great task. Many Bibles, if you uh, look at the title of, of um, this book, will write the Acts of the Apostles. That's not inspired. And I'm, I'm not sure that it's entirely accurate to call it the Acts of the Apostles. If you were to call it anything, it would be something like this. The continuing acts of Jesus through his followers powered by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> of course, that's not as sexy as the Acts of the Apostles, so... You can see why they'd want the shorter form. But um, it isn't entirely correct to say that this is the acts of the Holy Spirit because we have a role to play too. We have a part in God's mission. You know, I was thinking about how when you read the book of Acts, you'll see that throughout the book of Acts, God orchestrates these, these times where his disciples will encounter people who have incredible spiritual need. Think about in Acts chapter 16 where Paul encounters this woman, Lydia, and she's just, she's just ready to hear the message of Christ. Or you think about when Peter encounters this guy, Cornelius. You know, Cornelius gets this incredible vision. So does Peter, and God links them to, together. And that's the way the Holy Spirit works is he often creates these divine appointments. You know, as we're sort of walking around as a zombie early in the morning, going to class, you know, not really paying attention, you know, um, God may actually be creating divine appointments for us, orchestrating opportunities for us to share the message of Christ with people who may be spiritually hungry. Not to mention, he'll actually empower our words. A lot of times we feel like, I just don't know what to say. That's the reason why I'm afraid to share my faith. And yet God promises that as we continue to learn about the Bible and continue to refine our ability to share the message of Christ, that he's going to actually empower our words through the Holy Spirit. And we see that in a number of occasions throughout the book of Acts. You know, I've experienced this uh, movement of the Holy Spirit uh, a lot of times in my life, and I, I'll tell you, it's one of the great experiences you can have. I remember the first time that I had this, I was sharing my faith with this guy who I met in college, and I had been trying to talk to him about Christ for several months unsuccessfully. And so one night we went out, and he was driving me over to my ministry house, which was on Arcadia in Indianola at the time. And so we were driving, and he brought up um, the fact that he was feeling really lonely and that he felt like his life was really empty. And so I sensed that God was prompting me to share my faith with him. 
And I started to explain to him that really nothing he could ever do would fill that sense of emptiness or void in his life. That the only thing that would make him feel that sense of wholeness would be having God in his life, inviting Christ into his life. And so as we pulled up to my house, we, we continued our conversation. And at the end of it, he's like, you know, well, uh, I think I believe what you're saying. What's my next step here? And I said, well, I think you should invite Christ in your life. And so right there at like 2 o'clock in the morning, right in front of my ministry house, you know, we prayed. And as uh, we both said amen, I looked up and, you know, there were tears streaming down his face. You know, I couldn't help but well up with tears as well. And it was the realization that that one conversation, that one opportunity that God put into my lap has changed the course of this guy's eternity. And you know, the amazing thing was the things that I was saying to this guy, um, even if I had hours to sit down and write it out, I couldn't have come up with anything as good as that. I felt confident. I felt like I wasn't missing a beat. And the only thing that I can say was that the Holy Spirit was animating that conversation. And for those of us who've ever had that experience, you know that that's one of the coolest things you can ever experience. I've done a lot of things in my life. I've done a lot of drugs. I've had a good life, partying. And uh, really nothing tops the experience that I had right there, the fulfillment, the joy, the excitement. Well, he says, and you will be my witnesses. He calls on them to wait because this new program is going to be ushered in once the Holy Spirit comes. You know, the new covenant or the second phase of God's plan didn't start till God poured out his Holy Spirit. And we read about this, for example, in John 4, verse 23 and 24, where Jesus says, the time is coming, indeed is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father's looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So he's saying there's going to be a new program. It's not going to be like the old covenant program, which is chock full with ritualism, And things like that, this instead is going to be based exclusively on the Spirit. And he says, you're going to have to wait for this time when I enter into the next phase of God's plan. And then in John 14, verse 16 and 17, he says, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate who will never leave you. He's the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. And the world can't receive him because he isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you and will later be in you. And so he promises that one day the Holy Spirit will actually come to indwell believers. And so this event happens in Acts chapter 2, which we're going to read about next week. Okay, finally he says, after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud, and while they were watching, they couldn't see him any longer. And as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. I'm sure that probably startled them. Like, dude, where'd you come from? Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? What an odd question. If I was one of the disciples, I'd be like, did you just see what happened, dude? Were you standing here? Well, they said, Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. 
promise that one day Jesus will return and that he will appear in the clouds of heaven and come to establish his reign on earth. Okay. I want to leave you with a few questions to consider. The first question to consider is, have you ever experienced the Spirit's power in your life? The way to experience that would be, first of all, to receive Jesus into your life. If you're here and you're new, the central message of Christianity is that God sent his son Jesus to come and die for you. It's as simple as that. That he paid the penalty that you deserve to pay. And that once you receive the gift that he wants to give you by faith, that the Holy Spirit will actually come and enter into your life. Think about what Jesus says in John 7, verse 37 through 39. Anyone who's thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scripture declares, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he said this living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. Now notice, he doesn't say that it's when you passively believe that God exists. He says that it's when the Spirit enters into your life and, and this living water will flow from your heart. And so there needs to be a personal aspect here where you receive Christ. Secondly, have you embraced his agenda for your life? You know, maybe the reason why you haven't experienced the power of the Spirit is because you continue to cling on to your will and your desires instead of allowing God to carry out his will through you. And so I would challenge you if you're here and you haven't really experienced the power of God working through you to hand your agenda over to him and to carry out his agenda for the world. Finally, do you depend on his power? You know, as Christians, there is a tendency, a desire to want to do things on our own instead of relying on the Holy Spirit. And what that results in is burnout, where we are continually trying to carry out God's work in our own power, and uh, we start to tire of the things of God. And so it's going to require us going back to God and relying upon the Holy Spirit, maybe even hearing a reminder about the Holy Spirit's empowering to sort of spark and help us remember that it's really the Holy Spirit animating the work that we do. All right, there you have Acts 1. Yeah, Lord, I'm pretty excited about uh, embarking on this study in the book of Acts. And I pray that you would, um, you know, teach us about uh, maybe ways that we can uh, allow your Spirit to move more freely in our lives and in our church. We strive to become a New Testament-style church that we read about in the book of Acts. So I pray that as we study this, you'd give us a vision for what our church could look like as we apply some of these principles and examples that we're going to be reading about. And uh, most importantly, Lord, I pray for those of us who don't yet have the Spirit. Pray that if uh, any of us here sense that we don't have you in our lives, that we would take a step of faith and um, invite you into our lives right now. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.